Well, all around us, holiday preparations are in full swing. My cup from Starbucks this morning was festive, red, white, and green with little stars and a little sleeve on it that said, tidings of coffee and joy. Christmas tree lots are selling out. There's holiday sales all over the internet. We have some Christmas cookies to exchange later today. Yum. I get the impression that holiday decorations and music were in full swing earlier than ever this year, right? Many of us are feeling that we need all the light and the lightness we can get this year because it feels so dark and heavy in the world. The world is dark and heavy this year. You don't need me to list all the things for you. We carry them in our bones. This year, it feels a bit like we're all just trying to push back the darkness just for a little while. We put up our trees and and light our beautiful candles, maybe even our Hanukkah candles in solidarity with our neighbors. For a little while, we feel better. But the darkness is always right there, ready to creep back in down the chimney or under our door frames, ready to tap on our shoulders when we blow the candles out. And then on this third Sunday of Advent, we light this third candle, the rose candle. Not just pink, but rose. And we hear the word joy. 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 We need it, and we're doing our best to find it wherever we can. We say, well, this music or activity or TV show is really bringing me joy right now. And we ask one another, what's bringing you joy in this season? And we cling to those things. But when we talk about joy in that way, what we're really talking about is pleasure. And don't get me wrong, we need that too. Those things are good. But joy and pleasure are not the same thing, just as Canon Jay already has told us. C.S. Lewis even writes, I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. We are in desperate need of joy, real joy, deep joy, joy tied to something other than our circumstances or the pleasures of life. Well, today I have some good news of great joy. What is the good news of great joy that we need to hear today at the end of 2020, this crazy year? I have three reflections for us today. First, good news. Joy grows in grief. Grief is the very soil in which joy can grow, not something that has to extinguish it. Joy is not tied to happy circumstances, and it's not something we use to deny the way that things are. It grows out of the very brokenness of our lives and our world. Isaiah 61, which is the passage I'm focusing on today, in this context, Isaiah was proclaiming to an Israel oppressed by enemies, destroyed by enemies, Assyria and then Babylon, and also captive to sin, ruined by their sin. At the mercy of oppressors, ruined by the wrongs and injustices that they themselves had done. There's deep grief there. And that is the context in which the anointed one comes to shout, good news! Who are the people who are in a place to receive and embrace good news? The poor or afflicted. Those who are disadvantaged and powerless at the mercy of others and their circumstances. 
the brokenhearted, those grieving their sin and their loss, the captives and the prisoners, spiritually and literally. As commentator John Oswald puts it, those so broken by life that they have no more heart to try, those who are so bound up in their various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage, those who think they will never again experience the favor of the Lord or see his just vengeance meted out against those who have misused them, those who think that their lives hold nothing more than ashes and sackcloth and the fainting heaviness of despair. These are they to whom the servant Messiah shouts good news. As you know, Jesus takes up this passage from Isaiah 61 as his own job description in Luke 4. So it's no surprise then that we also hear echoes of Isaiah 61 when we think about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor and the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the lowly. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Because the people who know their own powerlessness and their need, the ones with the deepest grief, are the ones in the best position to receive and respond to the good news of great joy. Now the flip side, of course, is woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you'll go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. As one commentator puts it, though unstated, in order to reach those persons in the first verses of Isaiah 61, God's anointed must of necessity confront the perpetrators and sources of oppression, marginalization, hopelessness, and despair. Good news for the suffering and afflicted is bad news for the comfortable and the ones doing the afflicted. Who are the people in our own context who are in the best position to receive the good news? Who are the ones who know their own desperation, who are not dulled to their need of God by comfort and cheap joys? Who are the ones who recognize the full devastation of sin in their lives and in our nation? Is it us? Grief over physical and spiritual needs, the things that aren't right inside and out, that is the soil of joy. The wilderness in which joy can bloom. Embrace it as the very place in which the prophet's words echo. Good news. Second, good news. Joy is fed by justice. Joy abounds when God's people discern and do what is right. What is it that makes the prophet burst out into an expression of joy in verse 10? Well, it's this great reversal described in the previous verses. The way that God, who we are told loves justice, has restored the community of Israel to a place of justice, of righteousness and flourishing, a place of shalom. As Scott and Laura might put it in their new book, a place of tov, of deep goodness. Now, Isaiah 61 is really easy for us to spiritualize. When we hear poor, we automatically think poor in spirit. When we hear captives, we jump to held captive by sin. And that is part of the truth of this passage, even for Isaiah's listeners. But we also need to ask, is there a physical material reality for it as well that we miss if we make it just spiritual? 
The background of these verses is the law about the year of Jubilee, which is a synonym for joy for us, isn't it? Jubilee. The year of the Lord's favor, in verse 2, evokes this. You can read about this in Leviticus. God tells his people that every 50 years, following the celebration of Yom Kippur, the atonement, there was to be a proclamation of liberty to those in Israel who'd become enslaved because of debt. Freedom for the captives in our verses, that's them, those enslaved because of debt, as well as release for prisoners, those in prison because of debt. Along with that, there was to be restoration of land to families who needed to sell it over the course of those 50 years. It was restored to the way it was, it was at the beginning. It's a pretty amazing law. It kept people from being trapped in generational poverty, and it restored family units of the opportunity and resources to provide for themselves again. Well, by the time of Isaiah, this law wasn't practiced directly. For one thing, they no longer had control of the land. Things were all mixed up, some people in the land, some people not. But the Jubilee became this picture of holistic restoration and redemption, this picture of salvation. When Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 and Luke 4, he also uses a word, release, that has spiritual and literal implications, forgiveness of sins and financial relief of debts. What does he do in his ministry? Jesus heals bodies, relationships, and souls. The early church lived out their joy in worship and mutual economic help. Acts 4.34, there were no needy persons among them, echoes Deuteronomy. There shall be no needy person among you. Likewise, in our Bible study of James that we just wrapped up, we wrestled with James' words. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? The good news of great joy is that Jesus came to restore human beings to shalom, spiritual peace through the forgiveness of sins that is possible only by grace alone through faith alone, but also economic, relational, societal, physical, utterly holistic peace and flourishing. And that's why justice, creating righteous conditions, doing what is right, restoring communities and people to righteous relationships with God and others. Justice is the bread of joy. Because joy springs up when we get a taste of God's kingdom breaking in. As Bobby Gross puts it in his book about living the Christian year, he writes about this Sunday in particular. Whenever we see social justice or human flourishing or personal renewal, whether large in scale or small, we experience joy, a foretaste of that everlasting jubilation that will be ours on the day we come singing into Zion, not with masks on. It's that picture that makes Isaiah burst out in a song of rejoicing and the psalmist in shouts of joy. The picture and hope of God's beloved community flourishing in real righteousness, in all its facets, everything just right. Is this the good news we proclaim? Joy is fed by justice. Because justice creates a righteous community that radiates God's glory. Third, good news. Joy bears witness. Like John the Baptist, it points the way to something greater, to Jesus, 
to who God is, that he loves justice, that he is marked by faithfulness, that he loves us this much to what God has done. He has done great things. He's defeated sin and death in Jesus. He saved us and brought us into his kingdom. He breaks addictions. He overthrows oppressors. He has cast down the mighty and lifted up the lowly. And it bears witness to what God will do, that picture of the kingdom that we've been talking about. Joy bears witness to God because it's a gift from God. Again, Canon J reminded us about this, a fruit of the Spirit and a mark of God's presence. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. But it also bears witness because this side of eternity, our joy is always entwined with longing. And that longing points us toward the kingdom. As C.S. Lewis puts it, all joy reminds. It is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. Sometimes joy bears witness because it's a pure miracle, something only possible with God. And here I can't help but think about our African-American brothers and sisters. The black church in this country in its joy and prophetic witness is a miracle from God. Think about it. The black church began in the midst of chattel slavery, of literal oppression, literal captivity and powerlessness and despair. Slaveholders preached the gospel to those they enslaved, the so-called good news, but it was a half gospel, a, a twisted gospel, a good news for your soul, bad news for your body gospel. They used the Bible to justify enslaving and exploiting their fellow image bearers and to keep the enslaved quiet. They even altered the law so that they could baptize slaves without having to free them, which had been the custom for centuries up until then, that you couldn't enslave a fellow baptized Christian. Well, they changed that. You could understand if those Africans who became African Americans rejected this gospel entirely, and some still do. But in the middle of all that, the black church was born. How is that possible? Dante Stewart tells the story in Christianity Today. They fell in love with the God of Scripture. In Christ, they found salvation from their sins and reconciliation. And that's enough, but there's more. In these texts, they found not just an otherworldly God offering spiritual blessings, but a here and now God who cared principally for the oppressed, acting historically and eschatologically to deliver the downtrodden from their abusers. They also found Jesus, a suffering savior whose life and struggles paralleled their own struggles. They found Jesus. They found joy. The joy of that salvation and how the black church has continued to grow and celebrate and thrive through slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and continued injustices. This is a miracle. A miracle that bears witness and continues to bear witness to who God is and what God does and is doing in our world. And you know what? Isaiah 61 assures us that God is able to equip his people to restore and renew the ruined cities and the generational devastations. No matter how deep-seated those devastations, no matter how entrenched the sin, our God who loves justice can undo it. That's a joy that bears witness, truly. Good news of great joy for all people. 
In his wonderful little book, Salvation in My Pocket, theologian Ben Myers writes, the precondition for joy is not earnestness, but attention. It's what Simone Weil calls waiting. We do not obtain the most precious gifts by going in search of them, but for, by waiting for them. In other words, joy is better evoked than explained. So rather than end with a list of things I want you to go and do, I want to end with three quotes and invite you to simply pay attention to them in the spirit. They're brief quotes, don't worry. The first is from American poet, the late Mary Oliver. We shake with joy, we shake with grief. What a time they have, these two, housed as they are in the same body. The second, from a poem called Joy Unspeakable, by African-American theologian Dr. Barbara Holmes. It's a long poem, this is just one stanza. For Africans in bondage in the Americas, joy unspeakable is that moment of mystical encounter when God tiptoes into the hush arbor, testifies about divine suffering, and whispers in our ears, don't forget, I taught you how to fly on a wing and a prayer. When you're ready, let's go. And the last, again from Ben Myers. Evelyn Underhill knew a saintly man, Father Wainwright. He was an indifferent and in later years an inarticulate preacher. People came to his sermons not so much to listen as to look at his face. Good news of great joy.